I'm an alcoholic. My name's Buck. Hi, everybody. And it sure is good to be back at Rough River. I love this place. And I, but I haven't had a drink of liquor now in 18 days, six months, and 32 years. By the grace of God. <laughs> and this program really works, folks. I mean that. Uh, but the first time we come to Rough River, Bob. Bob called me, and I'm not one to call names. But I, just let, I do that once in a while. But Bob called me one morning. And he said, Buck said, we're having a, starting a deal out here in Kentucky and said, we ain't got no money. <laughs> well, that ain't much different than all of us. He said, but we'd like for you and Virginia to come out and talk. He said, I, I wanted to understand this. If you say, no, it's all right. And he meant that. And I looked at the calendar and I said, we'll be there. And we come out, and the first one, just about as many people, I guess, is here now. It's a full house. And we got ready, loaded up on Sunday morning, getting ready to leave, and Bob come running out there with his shoebox full of money. <laughs> he said, Ben, said, we got so much money, we don't know what to do. Said, I said, no, I understood it before we left home. You don't owe me no money. He said, we got to give you something for your gas up. And so this is our third time here, and I'm grateful to be back. And I'd have come this time if you hadn't had no money either. I can't <laughs> I love this place. But I got here for drinking liquor a long time. I didn't look at my watch. It don't make no difference. No way, I'm going to talk till I'm done. But uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I like a little old story. It's the oldest story around AA. and don't ever hear it told much anymore, but... Uh, this old boy, he was about as sick as I was when I come into AA. And one Sunday he was out walking the streets, and uh, he, he went into this church. He said, I'm going to go in there and see if I can find something that will help me with my drinking problem. And he went in, and the old preacher come out, and tall, lanky guy, and he said, uh, I'm going to take my text on Peter's wife's mother lay sick with a high fever. And he talked for an hour and a half. That poor drunk nearly died. And that evening he was out walking on the edge of town. He come up to another little church out in the country there, and he said, "Well, I believe I'll try this one." And he went in and sat down on his hands, and he looked up, and the preacher said, "I'm going to take my text on Peter's wife's mother lay sick with a high fever." And he talked for an hour and a half, and that poor drunk nearly went crazy. And he went out in the bush and slept that night. And the next morning he got on the bus and started to town and met a funeral arrangement coming out and he said this lady was sitting beside him and she said well I wonder who's dead he said I don't know but I'll bet you it's Peter's wife's mother she's sicker than hell all day yesterday <laughs> and that's that's about how sick I was when I come to alcoholics dog <laughs> <laughs> when I walked to my first meeting, I come here to get sober and stay that way. And I didn't know much about AA. One guy had told me about it. But I, I come to get sober and stay sober. And by God's grace, I haven't had a drink since September the 21st, 1967. And I went to Alcoholics Anonymous and got its understanding. But I was raised in a good family. Bunch six boys and one girl, and none of the Meltons ever been hung for stealing or nothing. They just said a lot of them. They've done some of them. Just had to get caught. Uh, 
but uh, was raised on a cotton farm, and, and this country looks a lot like where I was born and, and brought up at down there, except you couldn't see nothing but cotton. I mean, as far as you, your eyes would carry you in the summertime, it's white cotton field. And I didn't, I didn't particularly like chopping and picking cotton to start with, but as you grow up, the bigger you got, your job is to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, build a fire, and while your mama's fixing breakfast, you go out and milk them cows. And my time, when I was 15 and a half, my time come along. And, and uh, I didn't like that. Man, that milking them kids, building the fire is bad enough, but you go out there and start milking a bunch of cows with your hands. They didn't have them milkers today. And uh, I didn't like that. And as I say, we was raised good. Went, my dad had bought this farm right near high school and a little Methodist church. And every time, my dad wanted us to get a good education. All my brothers and sisters done very well. And, and Mama saw that we got to church every time those church doors was open. And when uh, I was 15 and a half, I run away. I got me a gray trailway bus, and I went to Charlotte. I was born in Union County, North Carolina there. And I got to Charlotte and went down and got me a little room and got rid of my blue bib overhauls. And that's been a long time ago, folks. I ain't never put a damn pair of overhauls on since then. I can tell you that now. They look good on that fella going around here a while ago, but I don't, I don't like them. And... Uh, that day I went up the street and I asked a man for a job in a little restaurant right across from the old Southern Depot there in Charlotte. And, and the man looked at me and he said, son, said, I need somebody. He said, you have to be 16 to work here. I didn't bat an eye, I said, I'm 16 and a half. He said, well, go over and get your workers from it and told me where to go and said, come on back. And I started over to get my workers from it and I got to thinking, you know, my first day out on my own and here I am lying. He wasn't kidding about that water, was he? And... Uh, And it bothered me that I'd, I'd lied on the first day out there. It didn't bother me enough to tell the truth, I can tell you that. I, was, I went to work at 8 3 o'clock with a old boy named Ward Pruitt, and probably you all never heard of him in this part of the country, but he was a man that fell out of an airplane in 1956. On his fifth wedding, he was going from Charlotte to Asheville on a little Piedmont airline, and he, I think, he thought he was going to the bathroom, and he pulled the handle, and that door cracked, and it just zooped and sucked him out. And he landed in the cemetery there in Shelby. And that's where they put the tombstone at. And, uh, and you know, I thought, I've told this story hundreds of times, and I, I, I thought when the man gets behind this podium, people believed him. And one night a man said, Buck, you don't think people believe that, do you? And I went home, and I got the paper. And I made him read it. You bet you he read that paper. So, and I still got that paper. And, uh, but I, that's the guy that I went to work with that day. And ever, the women just crazy about old Pruitt, and everybody liked him. And that night at midnight when they closed the little restaurant there, he said, uh, Buck, would you like a drink? And I said, man, I sure would. Now, I thought he saw about a Pepsi Cola, you know. <laughs> and he come back in the kitchen. He had a, had a pint of whiskey and two glasses and a Coca-Cola. And he just took a top of that bottle and handed it to me and said, go ahead and pour your drink. Well, I didn't know how to pour a drink of liquor. Never had seen nobody pour a drink of liquor. But I turned that bottle up and I poured a tumbler half full or more. And he said, don't you want some Coke? And I said, no, I drank mine like this. So you know I never had drank no liquor. You know? <laughs> and, and I turned that glass of liquor up and I took about two swallows and sneezed. And when I did, liquor come out of my ears, nose, and eyes. <laughs> And, and there was nothing exciting about my first drink of liquor, I can tell you that. 
And they took me down to a little room there. One of the cab drivers loaded me up and took me down. The next day, I got out and walked the streets of Charlotte and looked the town over. When I'd been at Prospect, a double store double of barns, the biggest thing I'd ever seen. And I got to town there, man. I wanted to see that town. I walked all over town that day. No hangover. I, hell, I didn't know what a hangover was like I was getting on up in the years. And uh, went on back and Pruitty told all the cab drivers that parked along beside the restaurant there, picking up people from the depot, about me taking that drink of liquor that night and sneezing. And all the cab drivers, they was kidding at me, and, and that was all right. And so I went ahead and worked that night, and at uh, midnight when it closed, one of the cab drivers said, Buck, come on and ride with me. He said, I'll show you this town. And I went out and got in the cab with him and up and down the street and made a couple of pickup deliveries and put a little old place on Mint Street there. And I said, what are we going to do here? And he said, oh, we're going to get us a drink of liquor. The only thing I learned from my first drink of liquor was you put a whole lot of Coke and a little bit of liquor. <laughs> And I, I fixed my first drink myself, and we were sitting there talking, you know, what, I don't know what drunks talk about. Back, I was just a kid, and I was excited about getting to ride around and see the town, and old Frank reached over, and he poured me a glass full of, a cup full of liquor. And we drank that down, and he said, Buck, let's go pick up some women. I know I had two drinks of liquor. I'd have tackled a tiger. I said, man, let's go. <laughs> and, and, and away we went. Done been shot two days and experienced liquor and women. Neither one of them could have killed me. And almost did before I got to alcoholics. And, uh, but I had a lot of good years of drinking. You know, I had people didn't have no fun. I had some fun drinking liquor. Didn't get in trouble for a long time. World War II come along and they drafted me. And, and I went in and I was a good soldier. You know, I wonder how we ever won World War II with these drunk pilots and stories you hear around AA. I swear, I don't know how it was. But I was a good soldier. Ended up in, in uh, a hospital there in Paris, and orders come through for me to come back home. So they're going to fly me back. And and I was getting a carton of cigarettes a week. I didn't smoke. My brother was sending me a carton. And I, I had, that, that was like gold over in Paris and right after World War, when the war was over. And so I had plenty of money, and they released me to that hospital and said, check in with the outfit. and. You, you'll be go, going home tomorrow. Well, I wasn't excited about it. I, I was having fun in Paris. And I just went down to a hotel and rented me a room, and I stayed there and drank for a week. And I had, this wasn't alcoholic drinking. This was hell. I knew what I was doing. I was having a good time. Stayed there a week, and I said, maybe I'll, they'll, they'll punish me and keep me here for six months. And so I'm going to go check in my outfit that morning. And I went and checked in my outfit, and they had me on a plane at 10 o'clock heading for Fort Bragg. Come on back down to Fort Bragg, sit around there three or four days, and got discharged. And come on, my mother and dad lived down, the, still lived there in the country. Now, I want to say this while I'm thinking about it. My mother saw me sober <coughs> in the program for 14 years. And for that, I'm grateful. But I spent a night with them down there that night. And uh, next morning, I got up and I said, Well, I think I'll go back to Charlotte and see if I can find me a job. And I pretty well knew I had a job. You get back in, you get a job anywhere you wanted. It. But I come on back to Charlotte that day, and the man that I had worked for, I stopped by the place, and he won't know if I was at. And I said, Yeah. He said, Well, I had to let a man go today, and said, I need you. He said, How about coming on back to work this evening? And I said, Okay. So I went down, got me a room, and come back up there, and I met my excuse for the next 20 years of drinking. Now, that, folks, that's been 53 years ago, and she's still sitting back there with me now. My God, and so she come by. And we got to talking. She she was she still ain't too damn bad, but she was a good looking woman. Showed enough back then. 
you come sashaying in that little, little restaurant there that night, and we got to talking a little bit, and I thought, damn, she kind of turned me on. I'm going to get her number, and I turned around, she was gone. A few minutes, I, this is the way it was, Mark. A few minutes, the telephone rang, and she said, how about taking me home? I said, okay. Where you at? She said, you don't even know who this is. I said, you know, a tall gal that's in here a little bit ago. She said, that's right. And I said, uh, she said, but I'm at home. I said, where you live at? And she told me. And she said that. She said she wasn't too bold, but she wasn't taking no damn chances now, I'll tell you. And uh, I said, well, when I get off, I'll be over there. She said, all right. So I went over to her place. <laughs> that's 53 years ago next month. And we courted in the swing. She wouldn't even let me in the house. Now, that's a bad way to start off with three years. <laughs> but it worked. And so the next day, uh, she wouldn't let me in the house. So the next day, I was at work. She come by and wanted to know who was going out that night. And I said, no. I do, do a little bit of drinking, and I knew all the cab drivers. There was no liquor store in our part of the country in 1948. And I said, I do a little bit of drinking. I knew all the bootleggers and the cab drivers. And I said, and I'll talk to you later. She said, okay. And she left. And that night when I closed the shop, <laughs> I walked to the door and she's parked close to be that table, the front door. I, I was going to see her before I got there. There wasn't no doubt about that. And I looked over in the car, sat beside her, and there was 12 bottles, old long necks sitting up there. And I looked in and looked them things over, and I think I knew right then I was going to marry that woman. <laughs> and, and my God, I, I I crawled in and I forgot about going to the bootlegger that night. I can tell you that. And and the way we went, things went good. We what about a year we were married, and another eleven months our first child come along. Another year, another child was born, and you couldn't rent a house if you had children. Right to war, you couldn't rent a place. So we had went out and bought one of the first. First housing uh, in Smallwood development out there. Good neighborhood. And I had I was working on the job, wasn't making no money, but didn't need no money. And she had, she had a good right good job, and I was I'd changed to the midnight shift, and I'd take care of the children during the day, and she'd work at night. And we was as happy as any two people could be. I wish it was that way again. <laughs> but we were we we were in love, and everything went good. All we needed then was a a mattress and a box of cornflakes and everything was all right. I got you couldn't do it. Things really went, went good. And, and I don't know why. I wanted, I wanted to be self-employed for some reason. And I had a chance to go to, into South Carolina to open up a nice drive-in restaurant. Beautiful place. It was a, a nice restaurant, too. And we went there, and, and you know, the first year I was there, I made more money than I'd ever thought about making. You give a little old country boy a pocket full of money, damn, and a bottle of liquor, you got some trouble. And and that's what happened to be. My wife was working with me, and, and we had good help back then. You you know, dependable help. You didn't have to worry about them. They was going to be there. You told them to be in at 10 o'clock, they going to be there at 10 o'clock. So, and I joined all the clubs all around, man, and i become a club man right off of the bat then if I had enough money to hang out them places. And things went good, and, and Virginia was running the drive-in. One night out there, I got to play a little poker, and uh, I want to tell you something else. I, have, I haven't turned a card or picked up a set of dice since the day I took my last drink of liquor. 
And that might, a lot of people can handle that, but I can't, for they still a little larceny in me today. I know that. And I like to win at everything I do, and if I'd start dealing, brother, I'd start handing them to you from the bottom, and the first thing you know, I'd be doing it on a daily basis, and I know this, so I don't take a chance at it. But uh, I was sitting there that night and, and watching the guy across the table from me, and I know that he was watching me, and when the game finally ended up, he said, but we could make some money. He said, I've been watching you. And I said, I've been watching you too. He said, let's get together with do a little gambling. And I said, when do you want to start? And he said, in the morning. And I, when I, I said, what's your name? That already told me so. He said, my name is Shrudy. Now that, that <laughs> the message right there. <laughs> and we, we started gambling and we didn't start, I used to say we gambling, we were really just a couple of thieves. We'd, we we done some crazy things out there taking people's money, but I'd I'd always come back and make sure everything at the restaurant and the home was all right, and I, I kept a check on that. And then one day Virginia was pregnant, and she said I stopped by, and she said, "But you got to come back and run this place. Let me go home and take care of my settlers' child born." <clears throat> and I said, "You get your thing, get out of here, go on home, and I'll see you tonight." And and I, that that still bothers me that she had to ask me to come back and do it. And she was up to six months pregnant. I don't know what the big deal was, but uh, <laughs> running a restaurant in, in that shape. And uh, she went on home. And and that night, I when I closed the place down, I got home, took a shower, and and went to bed. And I tossed and turned. I'd never see. I when I started drinking, I never quit. And I never. I thought I'd quit anytime I wanted to, but I'd never tried to quit. And that time, I told Shruti, I said, don't you come back out here. I don't want to see you no more. I'm done with you for a while. I'll get in touch with you. But the next morning, I got up and went back out to open this restaurant up. And I didn't know that I needed to drink a liquor. And I almost went crazy. And run everybody out and closed the place down. And I had a 38 in my pocket. And I walked into the stock room back there. And I think I was as sincere as any human being could be. And... I was going to end it all back there. And there was a quart of gin sitting on the shelf there. And I knocked the top of that thing and I drank every swallow I could get down. In a few minutes I thought, wasn't that the silliest damn thing you ever thought about, boy? And you know, I knew then what would fix me when I got down. And from then until I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, I never quit drinking but one time. Ended up to give my brother, put my brother in business there, and he done well and made a lot of money. And he had a home in Florida and one in North Carolina there, and a big Cadillac running up and down the road. And I'd say, my God, that ought to be mine. And it was mine. I drank it up. And I'd get me an old service station bill, and that's when they started going out of business. And I'd get me an old bill, and I'd put me a drink box out front and a dice table, the poker table in the back, and that's and selling liquor out the back door. And that's the way things went. And... Uh, you know, me and my brothers, we get along good. Now, I would, I there's five brothers, and I owed them a lot of events when I got coming to AA, and and I've got them made too. We get along real good now. After I'd been sober ten years, my sister called one day and said, "Bunk, we're having a Christmas party. I'd like for you and your wife to come down to it." And I said, "Well, God, that'd be nice." So we went down and had a real good time. And on the way home that night, I told over I said, "Now, in the morning, I mean." Next Christmas, if some, one of them don't have it, we'll have it at our house. I said, we, I'm glad we got this thing going. She said, Buck, I'm going to tell you something. 
said they've had that damn thing going for 10 years. They just now figured you can stay sober and come down right now. <laughs> now that'll get you upset, I'll tell you that. But we're still having it every year, and, 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 and everything's all right with, with us now. And, uh, but I'd, I'd run these little old places and get too hot on one side of town, I'd go to the other side of town. Me and, and they, at, at one time when I was in that restaurant, some of the citizens in that community down there wanted to talk, come talk to me about running for sure. Now, wouldn't I have made them a dandy? God. <laughs> And, and being the sheriff there, we we drank a lot of liquor together. And he he used to have private dining rooms back, and we'd come out and we'd go back there and drink. And uh, one day he come out of the place, one of the joints I was running. He said, "But said we got a federal man in town. Said he's looking for people selling liquor." He said, "Now I know this don't concern you, but just thought I'd tell you about it." <laughs> <laughs> About two hours passed, and him and that federal man come back out there. I done sold him two jugs. And things seemed like they went from bad. Just started going down the hill there. And, and so I, I took a job running one of the clubs out there. They needed somebody to run the game room and the, and the bar. That's a dandy job for a drunk. And I say, I didn't even know I was a drunk then. But I took that job and, and done very well for the club and uh, made, them, made them a good bit of money. When you're cutting the pot and stealing, too, you can't help but get ahead. And, and and done very well for the club and and one Sunday I come to out there and man I was sick hadn't been home all week and I called my wife and asked her she'd come out and get me she said she'd be out in a little bit and I called the manager of the club and told him I was quitting he wanted to know why and I said the people that hang out at this club it's causing me to stay drunk and I'm going to get away from them and he said Buck why don't you take off a couple of months we'll pay you and 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 come on back and run the club I said you've made us more than anybody that's ever run the club here and I said, no, I'm quitting. And so I, I left that day, hung around the house for two or three weeks, and uh, one day I got to thinking, I told Virginia, I said, you know, if we'd go downtown, open up a real nice restaurant on Main Street, we could make some money. We'd get all the church people come doing business with us. By that time, I'd done been in jail for fighting, gambling, and drug out of places. And folks, I'm going to tell you, if you expect church people to come do a business with a record like I had, damn, if you won't start death waiting on me. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't do no business. And and so I, but I run that, opened a little restaurant and run it and done, got by. Didn't make no money, but we got by. One day I went to open it up, October the 1st, 1958, and I just said to hell with it. Put the key back in, took the key out of the door and locked it locked back up, and I started drinking. Now, I'd been sober for uh, several months then, but I started drinking October the 1st and sold that place of business down the pool room there for $1,000, and I'd paid more than that for a little sign was hanging over the front door. And that's what I was willing to pay for another drink of liquor that day. And that's come on Christmas Eve of that year, I come home. If you don't believe this is a family illness, there's a big moving van backed up to the house there. And Virginia come running out. She was afraid I was going to fuss because she had gone to Charlotte and got her a job and rented a little house. And, and oh, and by the way, I forget, to, I don't never want to forget this. My sponsor told me, don't you ever forget to tell Ed for it. He says it still bothers you. I took her to the hospital when our last child was born, drunk, and got her checked in, forgot to go back and get her. And that still bothers me. And uh, 
So we loaded up that evening, and she said that I'm not leaving to be leaving you. I'm leaving because I got a house and a job and a place for us to stay in Charlotte. And said, you're welcome to go if you want to go. And I said, well, you done got the bed loaded? And she said, yeah. I said, yeah, let's go. I ain't had no place to go that night. But my good friend, I checked in that little motel over there. The day I checked in, I had a case of liquor. And he was real friendly. He'd come back by the room check on me regular, <laughs> as long as that liquor lasts. But he come back there that Christmas Eve to get his money, and I didn't have any. And he said, get the hell out of here. And that was the kind of friends I had. And so we come, moved back to Charlotte Christmas Eve in 1958. And on, on a Monday, I was going to go down and ask this man for a job that I used to work for. But I knew, by this time, I knew that he knew I was a drunk and he wouldn't hire me. I don't know why I, how I knew that, he knew that, but that's where, that's what I felt about myself then. And so uh, instead of going down and asking him for a job, I went down and, and there was a bunch of, a place where all the brick contractors and carpenters and all hung out. And I said, well, I'll go down there and get me a job doing something with, with these, doing labor for these outfits. And, and we had made a lot of money in South Carolina, but it was gone. And I went down there that morning and asked the fellow if he needed any help. And he said, yes, yeah. I said, I need a, I'm a brick contractor. And said, I need a labor, mixing mortar and hauling bricks. And I said, I'll take it. And he said, I'll pay you a dollar hour. And I took that job. Private. I was still strong and I could work in. And I, I'd, I'd give him a day's work. And then there's some days there that it was so cold you couldn't get out and work with the mortar. And we didn't get to make no money. And that's when I found out. Now, I'm clean and sober today. You hear me, Joe? And uh, I, ain't, I, I never did take no dope, but I, I experienced something that summer, that winter. I mean, it was so cold, and I didn't have no money to drink. They'd get that $8, so I couldn't buy nothing to drink. And I'd buy a little bottle of turpentine hydrate with codeine in it. And that'll get you downtown in a hurry. And I drank enough of that damn stuff. If I don't live much over a hundred, I had in order to never cough again. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I, I didn't even know what it was. I just knew it done the trick. And so I, I worked there a while, and, and this guy was working. He was real smart. He was a laborer, too, just like I was. And, he said, Buck, there's a little place down on the river for sale. I said, you been in the restaurant and land business? You ought to go down and buy that place. I said, man, I ain't got $10 in my name. That was one morning. That evening we went down there and had a couple of them little shooters. And I, I don't know if it affected anybody else that way, but hell, I'd get kind of rich when I'd get drunk. <laughs> and I said, told him, I said, let's get to go down there. I'll buy that place. We went down there after I had me a couple of the shooters, and he said, uh, Went down and looked it over, and the man told me what he wanted for it, and I said, I'll be back in the morning with the cash. And I know that man life when I walked out of that place with my muddy boots on and cement on my britches. But I went home, and I tried to get sober from then till the next morning. If I knew this brother that I put in business down there, wanted to help me get in business. And so I tried to get sober, and I went back to South Carolina, and I went in and told him what a nice place it was. A little bit of the truth and a whole lot of lies about it and everything. And he said, well, Buck, I hope you can get it. He said, damn, you ain't made the best out of your life. And I said, well, the reason I'm down here is I want to borrow the money for you to buy it with. He said, man, anybody made the money you made and threw it away, I wouldn't let you have a damn nickel. 
And all I wanted to do was just get up and get out of there. And I got up and started the door, and he said, wait a minute. He said, if you ever decide to do anything about your drinking, he said, I'll help you in any way that I can. Put you in any kind of business you want to go in. And I said, and I wasn't conning him. I said, I don't think I'll ever take another drink of liquor as long as I live. And I think I meant that. <clears throat> and he said, well, wait a minute. And when I looked over there, he had a roll of money. I had to choke a K. Don't never give a drunk no cash money. I got enough. And he counted out and he says, anything else you need? And I said, no. He said, well, when you get back and get the place, anything you need, let me know and I'll get it to you. I said, okay. And I appreciate it. As grateful as any human being could be. But from the time I got out of his living room to my car, I thought, by golly, I put him in business. And he made a lot of money and talked to me that way, the hell with him. And I talked about it. I went down to the liquor store and bought me a case of liquor with that cash he gave me. Got me a case of liquor and talked about him all the way back to Charlotte. And if I ever needed AA, I needed and had never heard of it at that time. You'd think some of them drunks that come around it, it knew me would say something to me, but nobody had ever said anything about it. So I got back to Charlotte and got to place and things began to go good and and a man walked in one day and he hired me to run a motel. He he'd come down there and he he watched you. I could tell he was watching me in this little joint I was running. And he said, Listen, son, I've been watching you here. I said, I know it. He said, I just bought a motel here and said, You look like a good operator. Said, I'd like to hire you. And sometime when we about having the bag, we operate pretty good, you know. And I said, Well, you know, I got a business. I got a wife and three children. He said, We got nice living quarters. Said, You you mentioned it to your wife tonight, and if you're interested, you come up here in the morning. I'd like to talk to you and your wife. I said, well, I might mention it to her tonight. And I, I couldn't wait for him to get out of there. The door had got closed. I done called her, and I said, you tell them insurance people, you won't be there tomorrow. We're going to get this job. I laid her in the motel drunk, and I know that wasn't no bad deal, you know. And I said, we're going to get that job. And so the next morning when I there, and sure enough, that man hired me, paid me more than I ever made on the salary. I never made any money on the salary. But that man paid me and was a good man. Went to work for him, and for the next four years, my wife done a damn good job running that motel, too. <laughs> and, uh, oh, we were talking about today, but oh, I, it, it was bad. I just, I really done some serious drinking from then on. I got... I, and I did. I couldn't quit. I'd try to quit, and I'd I'd say to myself, "My God, Buck, you're killing yourself, and you, the people you love, you're gonna run to your wife and your children. They don't have the things they need, and and me just staying drunk, and I couldn't get sober. And so there's a bunch of us. There's a little old place down there on the river called the Red Barn, and we used to have our policemen dressed up nice, nice uniform, and they'd lock you up. They'd come in and look at you one time, and kind of look you over and they come back and look at you again if you were still there you better be gone the third time they're going to take you down to my treatment center which would call the Mecklenburg County Jail <laughs> and uh, and so we'd go up behind the old red barn the, the policemen they don't get their cuckleberries on the pants and everything and they wouldn't bother we'd just sit up there and tell lies do whatever drugs do all day and we got to missing this old boy I'm going to tell you about Percy and, and Percy didn't show up. And I said, wonder where is Percy at? Next day, somebody else said, wonder where is old Percy at? Hell, we wasn't going to put a dime in the telephone back in to call to see where Percy at. We just wondered about him, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I got on back up on the hill where I stayed at for the next 25 years. And, and I'm talking about uh, this attraction to this program. 
a shiny car pulled in the driveway one morning. And I was sitting out there drunk as a cooter at 10 o'clock in the morning, Virginia done going to work. And this car drove in, and I thought, I wonder who is that in that nice automobile. And the fellow got out, had a suit of clothes, a necktie on, a white shirt. And he turned around, and it was Percy. And I thought, oh, my God, Percy's done gone off and got religion, and he's coming back to get me. I'd say, I always thought good about church people, and I thought that's what happened to Percy. I said, now, he's coming back to lay me some of that religion on me. And he said, Buck said, you got any coffee? And I said, yeah, I got some insulin there for emergency. He said, that'll do. He's, and, and as I say, I was drunk, and he said, I want to talk to you. And we go on in, and this man is clean as neat as he could be. And I made him a cup of coffee and had poured me another glass of liquor. And he said, Buck said, I know some people are going to help you. I said, what are you talking about, Percy? Help me. He said, well, you're going to lose this little deal you got going here. you got to wind through kids. You're going to lose them. And said, these people can help you. Well, I thought he had a banker somewhere, you know. And I said, who are you talking about, Percy? He said, it's a group called Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I know I had heard something about AA before. But I said, you go to hell. He pushed his coffee back, and he started out the door. And he turned around and he said, Buck, if you ever decide to do anything about your drinking, call AA. We're listening to telephone book. And he walked out. Now, he put a damn booger on me that day. I'm telling you, the damn truth, that. <laughs> The next Friday night when I was down there in the treatment center, I wish to goodness I could have talked to Percy then, and I really do. And, and I thought about Percy for a long time, for another 10, 11 months. And one day, the girl that worked there missed the bus, and I told Virginia, I said, well, I'll be back in a few minutes, I'm going to run Luella home. Now, Luella got back to work the next morning. It was two weeks before I got back. <laughs> and uh, I, I got... I went, ended up back down on that river walking and talking to myself. And see, I knew there's a better way to live. For Percy was living better than I was living, and I knew that. And and this thing bothered me, and I ended up in the, well, I was back playing poker all the time then, too, and ended up in the big game over there. And I walked in that morning, and on a Friday morning, September the uh, 21st, and I started a big old house back behind a little reception out front there. And this guy said, where are you going, fella? I said, I'm going back in the room here. He said, you don't go in there. I said, we don't allow strangers back in that room. I said, would you like to have a drink of this hunting-proof smear and all? He said, oh, yeah. So I poured him a drink. We shot a few games over down the table. I'd give him a dollar or two every time we turned around, talking 100 miles an hour. I just wanted to get in that room back there. And after a while, I poured him another drink, and I said, you reckon I can get that room back there? He said, oh, hell, Buck, I know you go on back there. So sometimes that juice really does the trick. And and I went back there, and I was sitting there with a full glass of liquor, and I said to myself, oh, boy, if you're going to get this money, you better lay off of that liquor. And so far as I know, that's the last drink I had. For I blacked out. I don't remember leaving there. And I'm going to tell you about some things that happened to me then. I drove 75 or 80 miles back down on the river there where I'd left a couple of days before, sick and hungover. And when I come to my senses, I was scared to death. I had my shirt full of money, my pockets full of money, and didn't, I knew I'd stole it, but I didn't, didn't know the remembrance of it at all. And that night I got on my knees and I prayed to a God that I knew about. My mother had taught us about. And I heard about it in the church. And I prayed to that God that night and asked him to help me straighten my life out. 
The next morning, the first thing that popped in my mind was Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, I'm going to call them today. I got in my car and drove back to Charlotte. I was way down in South Carolina. Drove back to Charlotte and pulled in the driveway in Virginia, sitting there looking out the window. And I hadn't even thought of an alibi or a lie. She always wanted to know where you've been, who, what you've been doing, who you've been with. And most of the time I didn't know myself. But I hadn't even thought of nothing to tell her that morning. I got out and I walked in. And she said, good morning, Bud. I didn't know God had been to our house before I got to him. But I guarantee you that's the first time she ever said good morning, Buck, when I'd been on two weeks drunk. So there wasn't no fussing, no fighting, and I didn't want her to know that I was going to do anything about my drinking. And I waited night while she went in the other room, and I looked up, looked two first AAs in the telephone book, and I dialed a number. <coughs> and this little lady answered the phone, and I told her, I said, she wanted to know if she could help me. I said, I want to do something about my drinking. She said, can I send somebody out? I said, oh, no, no, my God, no. They, I guess I thought they might think I was a drunk they'd send somebody out. <laughs> and, and I said, is there some place I can go? And she come to, and she said, yeah. Come to 709 East Boulevard. She said, you know anything about Charlotte? I said, yeah. She said, come down, there'll be somebody here. And I went out just like I was, didn't clean up or nothing. I went out and got in my car and drove down there. And when I walked in the door, this little lady said, you must be buck. And I thought, well, how did she know me? <laughs> Just talked to her on the telephone, told her I'd been drunk for two weeks. She could spot me a mile away, you know. And and uh, she said, come on in. So I want you to meet Jim. And she introduced me to Jim. Jim had been sober six and a half years. And I found out real quick that, you know, this was a killer that we had. And I'm going to tell you about what happened to Betty and Jim. Betty went back to drinking about 30 days, and she took a 32 and blew her brains out. <clears throat> Jim had six and a half years sobriety. A couple of months, he went back to drinking, and for three weeks, he never got out of that chair, and he died in his recliner. So I knew that this was a killer I was messing with. And I started, I went, Jim told me to be down, be back at the club at night at 7 o'clock, and I'll take you to the meeting. I said, okay. So I got down to the club, and my old car was kind of banged up, but the motor run good, and I parked out front. He pulled up in that big Chrysler Imperial and rolled the window down, electric deal. And he said, come on, get in. I said, uh I done hitchhiked back from Myrtle Beach a half a dozen times. You call a bunch of drunks, and they'll leave you, you know. I said, no, sir, I'll, I'll, I'll follow you. I'm not going to go go with you nowhere, buddy. But I, I didn't want to walk home that night, and... He said, all right, you come on and follow me. And I followed him over to the Queen City group, and that's still my home group in Charlotte, and, and pulled up there, and I saw an undertaker. One of the largest funeral homes in Charlotte was standing out front, and, I, and Hank used to eat with me. And I thought, my God, I know I'm sick, but they're going to bring some damn sick people in here. Got an undertaker out here tonight. <laughs> and, uh, and I'll never forget, old Hank, when I pulled up, he got trotting over there with a the hat out. He said, welcome, Buck. He remembered me. He said, welcome. He said, we need you. And I thought, man, damn, he belongs to this outfit. I'm going to go in there and listen. And I went in, and a man named John Hoppy, these people all day in there, and, and John got up there, and he talked that night, and I identified with everything that man told. And we hadn't done the same thing, but I identified with the things he had done, the crazy stuff he had pulled. I said, my God. I'm at the right place. And there was a little man sitting up on the front row across from me over there. 
and they had on women. I thought it was women's shoes. They weren't really. They had laced up patent leather shoes, high top. He was wiggling that foot just, and had on a yellow coat with black stripes around. Oh, that's a cool cat. <laughs> and, and, and I watched him, and, and when we said the Lord's Prayer, we just said amen. That was it. And when I looked up, Harry had his arm up around my shoulder. And he said, I'm Harry B., and I'm an alcoholic. And I wanted to say, who raped you? But I said, my name's Buck Mountain. I'm an alcoholic, too. He looked me right now and he said, Buck, I love you. And I thought, oh my God, no. Uh, I looked down to see if I was unzipped. And, uh, <laughs> I, I, want, I want to get rid of Harry. Now, I and so I. He gave me three or four of his cards, and, and I got away from Harry, and I started back there, and the man said, you're sick, aren't you, boy? And I said, man, you don't know. He said, yes, I do. And if you want to get well, you stay here with us, and we'll show you how. And he said, when did you have your last drink? And I told him. He said, Buck, if you ever take another drink of liquor, as long as you live, it'd be because you'd rather be drunk than to be sober. I said, now, how do you figure that? He said, we do this one day at a time, and it's been 24 hours since you had a drink. So you never have to drink again unless you make up your mind and decide to do it yourself. And he said, you got $4 and a half. He didn't ask me if I'd stole it. I said, yeah, I got some money. He said, go over and buy your big book. It might be the best investment that you ever made in your life. And I went over and got, got me a big book. And I had a couple of telephone numbers by that time. And he gave me his number. And I started home with a big book and some telephone numbers. And I thought, boy. I can't go home and tell my wife that I'm an alcoholic, my kids. Hell, and this this fear come back. And that's the last time I've ever been ashamed to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've always been proud from that day to the day to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, I, somebody that I think I, can, needs it, I'll let them know it right quick, and I'm a member of AA. Had me a big book and walked in and, Walked by the clothes hamper and dropped it in. Thought they were sitting around waiting on me, you know, and quick as I got home, got sat down. Hell, they said he come home, changed, put on clean clothes, he gone. We won't see him for two weeks, you know. And they got ready and went to bed. I went to the bathroom, got my big book out of the clothes hamper, and started reading it that night. And that's an interesting book to read. By the time I got over to page 10 and Bill's story, I knew that I was an alcoholic and my life was unmanageable. There was no doubt in my mind. I'd always had a belief in that there was a God, a power greater than me. There was no decision for me to make about that. That night down in those woods, now I've done all these steps over, but that night down in those woods, that's when I made the decision to turn my life and my will over to God's care. And and things, and I read that night, and when I got over to Bill's store, I said, my God, if that man's an alcoholic, I know I am. The only difference in Bill Welch and me, I identified with his thing, situation thing. He was on Wall Street and I was on West Trade Street. It's the only difference in me and him. We had the same feelings. And so I knew that this program would work for me, and I started going to meetings. And, I mean, I'd, I'd go on a regular basis, too. It wasn't just, you know, they, nobody mentioned 90 and 90, but I, I was going to meetings. 
Been sober three weeks. My wife said, well, I, one, one night I was getting ready to go. I said, I'll see you about 9.30, 10. She said, well, I want to go with you. I said, well, come on. Quick as I said, I said, oh, my God, I done. She'll go over there and screw the whole deal up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but on the way over there, I said, everybody talked about the sponsors, and I didn't have a sponsor. Everybody thought that the man that brought me the first night was my sponsor, and I never did see him. When they say amen, he was gone. And so I asked this man that talked to me that first night, told me I didn't have to drink more. I said, uh, they, I said I was going to get me a sponsor, and so they asked for an announcement. I raised my hand. They said, go ahead. I said, I want an announcement. I want me a sponsor. Everybody laughed. I thought, well, I've done something wrong here. They said, no. Pick out somebody in this room you like. You like the way they work in their program and ask them to help you. But we won't give you some advice. Be sure that they've got at least a year's sobriety. For if you get somebody who's been sober three weeks like you have, both of you might end up out there drunk. And I think that's some good advice to give me. So I punched, I sent my Wilson to every meeting Friday night. I'd get between him and his wife. And, and, and I just like this guy. And so I punched him. I said, Wilson, would you have the program? He said, I'd be glad to. I said, we'll talk after the meeting. I said, well, man, I can't wait to, after the meeting to find out how long this man's been sober. So I punched him. I said, how long have you been sober, Wilson? He said, I've been a member of Alcoholics Anonymous a good stand for 25 and a half years. I said, well, my God, you'll do, man. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and so, so that, after the meeting, we went out that night, and we redone the first three steps of the program. And, and I'm not going to get started on the steps. I can't. I don't know why I keep looking at my watch. And... Uh, but the, the, these are the steps that I took, and they work, they work in my life today. My wife got active in Al-Anon. Sometimes I think she got too active in it. But uh, <laughs> she's gone more Al-Anon than I was drinking liquor sometimes for, for about 12 years. But I think, I think uh, any time that this program don't work at home, it's not going to work anywhere else. And so I'm glad that we got started in the in the program pretty well together there, and she's got her program and I got mine. And so I try to leave hers alone, and sometimes she does mine. <laughs> I yeah I know I I could almost see her giving me the finger back there now. <laughs> That's, that's one thing she never has done. I'll say that. <laughs> but we got we have, have three children, and they they grow grow all grow up around the program of alcoholics Anonymous. That's not a bad way to raise your children. And sometimes I hear some language in our groups that bothers me. For when I was taking my kids to with me to open AA meetings. If I'd heard some of the stuff that goes on today, I'd have got up and said, hey, Bo, how about shutting up and set the hell down? And I still feel that way today. But we, I think I need to show respect for the new people that's walking in these rooms and their families. And I had a, a granddaughter come along. And she's about three years old. She says, Pop, I want to go to one of their meetings with you. I said, okay. And her mama said, Dad, you don't want to take her. She'll cause you trouble tonight. I said, well, she does, I'll bring her home. But I'm not going to have, we're not going to have any trouble. So we go over to the speaker meeting, and we sit on the front row. I still like speaker meetings. I always have. And we sat on the front row, and the man got up there, and he talked. And 
she sat there right beside me, and I'd talked to her before we got there and told her she had to be quiet. Didn't say a word. When the meeting was over, all the ladies got her some cookies and a Coke and played with her a little bit and talked to her. On the way home, I said, Rachel, I'm real proud of you. You done good. She said, well, when we get home, I want you to tell my mama that. And I said, okay. So we started going to meet. She wanted to go. She'd go to Island on with her grandma and open a meeting with me. And one Christmas time come along, and she was five years old. And, and uh, I said, her and her mother was going shopping. I said, Rachel, why don't you stay here with me and let your mother go get her shopping done? She said, I'd like that, Pop. And I said, okay. So they left to go shopping, and Rachel said, Pop, let's have a meeting. Now, she'd been going to AA for two years. I said, open meetings. I said, what kind of meeting you want to have, Rachel? She said, oh, AA meeting. I said, okay. So she bragged a little thing, and she said, now, we're going to make out that we're talking in this. And she said, you tell them who you are. And I said, I'm Buck Mountain. She said, are you alcoholic? I said, yeah. She said, well, you had to tell them that. <laughs> she said, now, we're going to pretend the meeting's over. said, we'd would you offer chips? I said, yeah, she liked the chip. I said, Do we get the white chip is for the beginning. Anybody want a white chip? How about the red chip for three minutes? She said, wait a minute, Pop. There's a lady way in the back coming to get a white chip. <laughs> <laughs> and somebody picked up one of everyone's chips. She liked the chip. And so she said, now, I'll take the mic. I'm going to close this meeting. She said, when we close this meeting, we pray. And after we pray, if you want refreshments, go in the kitchen. If you don't, just go on home. I said, <laughs> I said that kid's been listening closer than I have at these beans. But it, it, it's been a good life. I, 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 I've enjoyed working with new people. Now, you people are getting old. Let me tell you something, what it means to me today. People I've sponsored over the years, <clears throat> I don't have any trouble getting to meetings. Every night, somebody comes by and takes Wants to know if I want to go to a meeting. All I got to do is blow the horn. I'm ready. I don't go about seven meetings a week now. And uh, and I love it. And I want to tell you about Leo, and then I'm going to quit. He was a little man I sponsored down at, down at Myrtle Beach. Him and, and a guy named Walt was from Douglasville, Georgia. Well, I, when I, Walt was staying, we were running a little old motel, and Walt was staying there at the motel, and, and uh, when I got sober, Walt come by and I'd just get a Coke and a bucket of ice and we'd go over. He, he was with a big company, they furnished liquor, and we'd drink. I helped him drink a lot of that company's liquor. And so <laughs> when I got quit drinking, Walt, he, he didn't understand. And so I told him, I said, Walt, I'm an alcoholic. When we drank, I'd just keep on, I'd just stay drunk. And I, I'm not drinking today. So that night he went on out and, and about... Ten o'clock, Walt come in, and I saw him coming down the driveway. He had two king-sized Budweiser. He said, Buck, since you can't drink liquor, I brought you a couple of beers. <laughs> I said, Walt, you don't understand. I, I, I want to explain something to you. I can get a tub full of white liquor. If I don't open my mouth, it won't bother me a damn bit, but I cannot take a swallow of it. And he understood it. Later on, Walt came into Alcoholics Anonymous, got sober and stayed sober till 19. He got sober in 76 and he stayed sober for 16 years. We got a call. He's over here in London, Kentucky in the hospital. Had a brain tumor. And he died right there in the hospital. So we went down to Douglasville, Georgia to his funeral. 
And when that when they procession come out from the funeral home, every policeman in that town had his hat off and his hands crossed. Showing respect for old Doug. And I couldn't, I told Virginia, I said, do you know how many times they'd haul him down to the booby hatch? And by God, they respected him today. And he owed it all to Alcoholics Anonymous. And for that, I was, I was grateful to be a part of his life. And this little guy, Leo, down at Myrtle Beach, met him one day and he said, I want to come talk to you. Been sober about two months and he come up and he had a little folder with him and I said, what's you got there, Leo? He said, got an inventory. I said, well, you getting it on with it, buddy. I'm glad to see that. He said, it's yours. <laughs> and uh, that'll kind of upset you. And <laughs> I said, what do you mean doing my inventory? He said, well, said, I've been watching you. And said, when are you going to ask somebody to help you run your life? You ought to know something about them. So I took the inventory. And I think that was good when they explained it to me. And so we were good friends. And his 21st year, he got cancer and just the fast-moving kind. And now we went out and spent most of the summer with him at the beach. And one day we was, <laughs> we was in there talking. He told the girl, I said, y'all get out of here. We're going to do some talking. And we had talked a lot. But it was getting toward the end. Then. He said, Bo, what's going to happen to me? I said, Leo, you're going to die. We're all going to do that. He said, uh, but I, I'm not. I said, what, what's going to happen when I die? Where am I going? I said, Lord, I don't know. That boy, he was dead serious then. I said, I don't know, Leo, but you've been good to a lot of people and you work with a lot of people. And wherever you go, it's going to be a good place. He said, how do you know? I said, the only thing I could think of, I said, I'll tell you one thing, Leo. There ain't nobody never come back and complain the damn bit. <laughs> and I thought, I thought that boy would jump over that cow. <laughs> and he laughed and just carried off. And that was on a Wednesday. And I left, went to retreat and come back Sunday evening. And Leo had gone on. And he told us that day, told me that day, he said, Well, I'm going. If I don't like it, it's not a good place. I'll be back in seven days. And that's been eight years ago, and Leo ain't back yet. So wherever, wherever we go when we leave here, it must be all right. And when I go before my maker, and I, I love y'all, and I thank you for letting me come back down here, and I really mean that. It's been a good trip. And when I go before my maker, and, and I believe sobriety is a gift from God. We don't create it. It's a gift from God. He, he put Bob and Bill together, and they... They put the program together. And when I go before my maker and he wants to know what I've done with that program of Alcoholics Anonymous, he give me, I hope, I hope and pray I can say I passed it on. Thank you all.